In the book of Joshua, we're told of Israel entering into the promised land. Finally, after 440 years, they had been waiting to get into this land that had been promised to Abraham. Now, they had come close once before. They had come right to the edge of the promised land 40 years before Joshua. But because of disobedience and a lack of faith, they were not allowed to enter into the promised land. However, in Joshua 5, we hear the story of them setting foot in the promised land for the very first time. And this is what the passage says. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. Now I was drawn to this passage this week because although it may be hard to believe, we have this week at Calvin, next week at Calvin, and then Lord willing on the 18th, we move back up the belt line to our campus there. It's hard to believe uh, that that time has come. You can clap for that, that's fine. <laughs> But over the past uh, few weeks, we've been trying, just sort of in a little bit at the beginning of the service or at different points, to kind of do some teachings or to make some announcements, to think about some things in order to get us ready to be able to go back uh, to Calvary. We've talked about together how the fact that on the 18th of December, we have the opportunity to give God an offering uh, that's going to go towards Grace Beyond, but that is out of the gratitude for what God has done for us this year. And many of us have experienced healings, uh, adopted children, <clears throat> seen God restore relationships, uh, gone through incredible experiences, and it's just an opportunity for us as a church as we're celebrating collectively, to be able to say thank you to God for how faithful and good he's been to us. We've talked about the fact that when we go back uh, to our campus on the Beltline, we're gonna have two services at 9 and 1045. We came to that not by kind of surveying people or trying to take attendance and figure out how many people are going to be there. We prayed and asked the Lord, he told us it was supposed to be two services, so that's what we're going with, and we're going to stay with two services until the Lord tells us uh, to do otherwise. They'll be at 9 and 1045. We've talked about that. We also talked about the fact uh, that when we go back, we're going back as a different church, that God took us on a journey to transform us as a church. One of the ways he's been transforming us is he's making us into a church that is more attuned towards serving and volunteering. That's not just for who we are at Calvin. That's part of who God is making us as a church. And so when we return to our campus on the East Beltline, we want to see that happen more and more. Well, this week, we were scheduled to talk about 
managing expectations as we go back into the building. And uh, instead of doing it as sort of a separate piece at the beginning of the service, as I was thinking through the things I'd like to share with you about kind of our expectations as we go back on the 18th, it actually fit with the passage that we have from Romans 12 to think about today for the fourth commandment of love. And so what I want to do is I want to spend a little bit of time talking about Israel's experience moving into the promised land so that we can talk a little bit about our experience moving back to our campus on the 18th, both of which so they might begin to illustrate the main point that we're going to get to from Romans chapter 12. Now, when you take this passage in Joshua or you think about Israel moving into the promised land, there are a couple of noteworthy things. The first is, as I read that passage, at least the thing that came to my mind was, where's the milk and honey? Like this promised land that God had been talking about, he kept describing it as a beautiful land, a land flowing with milk and honey. You might remember that the Israelites sent some spies into the land, and when the spies came back, they talked about the amazing fruit in the land, the figs and the pomegranates and the grapes, and they come back and say, it is indeed a land flowing with milk and honey. And my question is, when they get into the land, where is all that stuff? I mean, yes, they get to have unleavened bread and roasted grain, but come on. I mean, you've got to remember that other than two people, nobody in the nation of Israel has ever set foot in that land. And I've got to imagine they've been hearing about this promised land, this land promised to Abraham and his descendants their entire lives. And they get to the edge of the Jordan River and they're ready to go across and God performs this amazing miracle. And the Jordan River splits and the nation walks across. If I'm there... After hearing about this all this time, seeing the miracles God's done to get us to the point, I'm going to walk across that Jordan River, and I'm going to think I'm entering into the Garden of Eden on earth. I'm expecting trees uh, full of the, the fruit of life. I'm expecting milk and honey. I'm expecting heaven on earth. And the thing that strikes me is, is the first day in the land, the first night in the land, They've got roasted grain and they've got unleavened bread, but where's the rest of the stuff? So too, when we go back on the 18th to our building, we've been talking about this for a long time. We've been giving money. We've been here at Calvin for eight months. There is a possibility to go back into that building and think, It's going to be the Garden of Eden. It's going to be heaven on earth. It's going to solve all of our problems as a church. Let me tell you, that's not what's going to happen. Here's what I think your experience is going to be. It's probably going to be similar to what my experience has been so far. Is that when you walk into this sanctuary, which uh, I did a lot this week, when you see the construction, your response is going to be, wow, This is amazing. But at some point, either on that first day or a week later or a month later or six months later, you're going to ask the question, 
Well, hey, we're doing all this construction. Why didn't we do this piece? Or why did that turn out like this? Or I don't like those colors over there. Or why is the parking lot still difficult to get out of? Or why can I not find a seat? Or where is the Calvary Cafe after all? Or why isn't the children's ministry space done? Because when we go back, the children's ministry space isn't going to be done yet. And the gathering space isn't going to be done yet. And we're not going to have solved all the parking lot issues, and we're not going to have figured out exactly where everybody's sitting and how all the flow is going to work, and there won't be a Calvary Cafe for the first few weeks, and when we do have, it'll be in too small of a space for another six months until uh, everything is sort of completed. But even once all the construction is done, we're still going to have issues that we struggle with as a church. And the point is, is that just like Israel moving into the promised land still had the same struggles as a nation that they had before they crossed that Jordan River, because there is no piece of land that is going to solve all their problems, so too we as a church are going to have some of the same struggles we have today because there is no building anywhere that can solve those things. And there may be some things that you are frustrated with about this church. You're still going to be frustrated about those things when we have this new building. Having said that, the more important thing from Joshua in thinking about moving back into our building is that they do spend their first day celebrating. They're celebrating. Now, what are they celebrating? Well, of course, they're celebrating the fact that God got them there. They're celebrating the fact that he opened up the Jordan River. They're celebrating the fact that he pulled them out of Egypt. They're celebrating the fact that they do have roasted grain and unleavened bread. But there's more to it than that. They're celebrating in hope. On the very first day, it's not yet a land flowing with milk and honey. On the very first day, they do not yet have the fruits of the land. But that doesn't mean they're not coming. And so on that first day, they stop to celebrate knowing the first day is not the best day. It's simply the beginning of great things that are to come. There are giants in the land, but they're going to be conquered. They're going to build their houses. They're going to plant their gardens. They're going to eat the fruit of their own gardens. It's going to get better and better and that God's promises are true. And so they celebrate on that first day in hope. So too for us, when we come back on the 18th, we're going to have a celebration service. We will be celebrating in part that God has brought us safely to that place. We'll be celebrating the fact that the building that we have is a wonderful building. We'll celebrate the fact that God allowed us to be at Calvin for these eight months and was faithful to us this entire time. But a big portion of the celebration on the 18th will be a celebration in hope 
that what God has promised to us as a church, he's going to do, that the 18th is not our best day in that new building. Now, from a materials point of view, there are some things that it will be. That thing is just going to get older as we go through it. But the point is, from what God is doing with us as a church, Grace Beyond has never been about bricks and mortar. It's about God transforming us into being a more obedient church, a more hospitable church, a more merciful church, a more diverse church, a church that is ready to follow the Lord and go anywhere he takes us. The 18th is just the beginning of God doing that more and more. And we can celebrate together in hope, in hope of what God is doing. Celebrating in hope turns out is not only useful for Israel and the promised land and for our church as we go back on the 18th, it's also the fourth commandment of love for our interpersonal interactions with each other. So please take a Bible and turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, it's page 920 in the Bibles that the church provides. We're in a series that we've entitled The Ten Commandments of Love, which are essentially about our relationships with one another. And if you are willing to do what God commands in these Ten Commandments in Romans 12, your relationships with other spouses, grandparents, friends, small group, at work, in your neighborhood, wherever it may be, these ten things are designed by God to cause those relationships to be as great a blessing as possible. We're in our fourth commandment. We're going to look at it in verse 12 in just a moment. But I should note that only is it, not only is it not an accident that we are talking about moving back to our campus and celebrating in hope this Sunday, it's also not an accident that we're thinking about Advent because Advent, too, is a celebration in hope. During Advent, we not only look back to Jesus' first coming, we actually look forward to his second coming, and we celebrate his coming in hope. At Christmas, Jesus is announced as the King of Kings and the Prince of Peace. But we look around the world today, and we see that there is trouble, and war, and famine, and disease. And sometimes when you look around the world today, you say, what is there to celebrate? Well, we celebrate in hope because Jesus is going to return and he will make all things right. And so Advent itself is a celebration in hope. Well, Romans 12, 12, we're looking at just the first phrase. God says, be joyful in hope. Now, to be joyful and to celebrate, that's the same sort of idea. And what we're talking about is what we need to do as a church on the 18th, what we do as Christians with regard to Advent, is also what is a blessing in our relationships with one another, and that is to be joyful in hope. Now, 
I spent some time this week looking up every instance of the word joy or rejoice in the New Testament. And something very interesting, after collected all of those instances and examined them, they fall into essentially one of two categories, one of two sort of contexts. The first is joy as a response to what God is doing in the present. Not so much what God has done in the past. That tends to be words like praise or gratitude. When we think back to what God has done, we praise him. But when God is active in the moment, the emotions that we experience are joy and rejoicing. So when the wise men see the star and know that the Savior of the world is born, they rejoice that God is active at that present moment. When Jesus' disciples return from having been sent out and they have this heart for evangelism, Jesus rejoices and is full of joy at what God is doing at that moment. When Paul hears that the Thessalonians are standing firm in their faith, he rejoices that God is at work in the here and now. So a number of passages in the New Testament use joy in connection with God's working in the present. Some of you may have experienced that this week. God may have done something. I'm thinking of a family in our church rejoicing over the Lord curing uh, cancer. And the idea is, is that the response to the news that the person is cancer-free is overwhelming joy. The second category, however, is actually more common in the New Testament. And the second context for joy is not so much what God is doing in the present, but what is coming in the future. In fact, that's the majority of uses of the word joy is about the future. And in fact, joy shows up a surprising number of times in contexts where suffering, persecution, trials, and difficulty are being discussed or happening. And the idea is, is that in those contexts, God says things like, rejoice because great is your reward in heaven. Or rejoice because God is using this suffering to transform you to be more like Jesus. Or rejoice because God has promised he will never leave you nor forsake you and he will be with you during this time. Or rejoice because you know that when Jesus returns, he will make all things right. And this idea of joy in our thoughts about the future actually dominates the New Testament's discussion of joy. It's that aspect of joy that Paul is talking about when he talks about be joyful in hope. Of course, he wants us to be grateful for the things that God has done in the past. Of course, he wants us to be rejoicing in what God is doing in the present. But this phrase, be joyful in hope, 
is focused on the fact that God wants us to express joy as we think about the future. Now, I'm going to show how this affects our interpersonal relationships in just a moment. But before I do, I want to answer a possible misconception that you and I might have when we hear a command that says, be joyful in hope, or when you hear something like when Philippians says, rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice. One possible misconception or one question you might have when you hear that is, does that mean I'm supposed to be happy all the time? Does that mean that no matter what I go through, I should have a smile on my face? Does that mean that no matter if I lose a loved one or if I'm going through a difficult breakup or I'm experiencing some sort of uh, come face to face with evil in this world, that no matter what happens in my life, I should always be happy and joyful about it? Well, this is why I think it's so important that God has said, be joyful in hope. The point is, is that it's a focus on the future. And because joy is something that comes to us from the future, it's possible for joy to be present with other emotions that are coming to us in the present. Let me show you some scriptural examples to kind of explain what I mean. First one's from John 16, verse 21. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Here, for those of you who are moms, for those of you who have been around childbirth, you can understand there is a lot of anguish associated with the birthing process. But there is at the same time that anguish is present, there is also joy present because of what is coming in the future. The fact that a baby is coming, this joy, allows us to think about the good things and not focus on solely on the anguish, but the anguish and the joy are present at the same time. The anguish is the focus on the present circumstances. The joy is what is coming in the future. I know for Lisa and I, four times we found out that we were going to be having a child, and each time I was filled both with fear and with joy, and that both were present at the same time. In the delivery room, I can testify, there was both anguish and joy. And that in many ways, the joy is what gets you through the anguish. That and an epidural. <laughs> but the point is, you can both feel joy and anguish at the same time. Because joy comes from the future and anguish comes in the present. Second example, Matthew 28, 8. This was striking to me when I saw this this week. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. This is on the day of resurrection. You would have thought on resurrection day, well, that's just joy all the time. But these women are afraid. What does this mean? How is this going to work itself out? 
what's going to happen now. But at the same time, they have joy because they know God is at work. Whatever has happened with Jesus, he's not in the tomb anymore, and so there is joy. But at the same time, there's fear. I feel this about Grace Beyond. God has made incredible promises about Grace Beyond, and when I think about those promises, my heart is filled with joy. Promises of what he wants to do in us as a church, how he wants to transform us, the things he wants to accomplish. My heart is full of joy. But there are still obstacles between now and then. And those obstacles can create fear. And so I'm comforted by the fact that these women were both experiencing the emotion of fear as they thought about the present and joy as they thought about the future. Third example, 2 Corinthians 6.10. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Again, the world would tell you that sorrow and joy are opposites. What I love about what God says is that if, for example, you go through the loss of a loved one, there is sorrow associated with that. But at the same time, if that loved one has died in Jesus, God has overcome death. You will see that loved one again, and there is joy at the same time. Joy doesn't eliminate the sorrow at death, but nor does the sorrow at death overcome the joy of the resurrection. And when you think about the present circumstances of being separated from that person that you love, there is sorrow. When you think about eternity together with them in heaven, there is joy. And sorrow and joy present at the same time. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, and 2 Corinthians 8, 2. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And then in another context, Paul says, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Suffering, persecution, and poverty exist at the same time with joy. We've heard this anytime we've talked to someone who's from a different part of the world where they're experiencing persecution for their faith. They will talk about how the persecution is difficult. It's painful, it's hard while at the same time rejoicing in how God is using and will use that persecution to bring others to faith and to transform and strengthen his church. That's what this is talking about. You can be experiencing the difficulties of poverty, the pain of suffering, the struggles of persecution, and have joy at the same time. And that's because when you focus on the present, there is pain, there is struggle, but when you think about what God is going to do through those, it creates joy. Last example, Hebrews 12, verse 2. This is speaking about Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. For the creator of the universe to come into his creation and be rejected by us 
and crucified on a cross, spit upon, mocked, declared guilty in an unfair trial, that's humiliating. That's what that passage is saying. It's shameful. Jesus experienced embarrassment and humiliation and shame. But at the same time, he has joy. Joy because he knows that that humiliation, that embarrassment, that shame is going to result in what's happening right here this morning. People gather together rescued out of sin, rescued from Satan, rescued from death, praising his name. And for the joy that's coming in the future, he endures the shame of the present. And the idea is both joy and shame are present at the same time. So when you hear someone say, rejoice in the Lord always, or you hear the Bible say, be joyful in hope, it doesn't mean you never have sorrow, you never have pain, you never have fear, you never have anxiety. It's a recognition that we are to be joyful in hope. That the future, here's the crazy thing for being a Christian, the future is always better than the present. This is one of the sort of truths or proofs about God. Who else or what else could you ever make that claim about? Think about it. For all of eternity, the future will always be better than the present. Only an infinite God who is infinitely good can continue to make things better and better. And the point is, is that when you and I as Christians think about the future, there is always the possibility for joy. It doesn't override the fact that in the present, there is anguish, and there is pain, and there is humiliation, and there is suffering, and there is poverty. And the thing I love about the way God says it, be joyful in hope, You and I can allow both to exist at the same time. We can be sad, yet rejoicing. We can be afraid, yet filled with joy. And the command in Romans is for you and I to be people who are focused not only on the present and the pain and the sorrow and the sadness and the difficulty, but also on the future and the joy that will come. And his promise is that if you and I will be joyful in hope, it will be a blessing in all of our interpersonal relationships, marriage relationships, parent-child relationships, work relationships. How does that work? Well, let me give you three examples. One, imagine that you're a parent. And you have a child who's making poor choices when it comes to friends. Maybe they have the wrong friends. Maybe they're in a difficult situation where they're lonely and they don't seem to have very many friends at all. When you focus on the present, there's a very real possibility for anxiety or for worry. As a parent, you can look and say, this isn't going to turn out well. You can look and feel pain for your child. You can be afraid for what are these uh, bad friends? How are they going to influence your child in the wrong way? But at the same time, 
you can also claim the promise that if your child is a Christian, your heavenly Father has promised and sworn an oath that he will transform that child so that they will not always make bad choices about friends, that they will not be alone, that for eternity God has planned for them great plans, that he's going to take the suffering that they're experiencing now and use this to teach them and to transform them. We talk about our children sort of working on their testimony as they go through difficult experiences like this. The good news is God has promised He has sworn an oath, your child will become like Jesus. They will become mature on the day of Christ Jesus. And the struggles that they're experiencing now will not be their struggles forever. Now can you imagine if you're a parent who not only has anxiety and worry and fear about your child's friends now, but also has joy in God's power to fix that situation, do you not think that would be beneficial in your relationship with that child? That if if your attitude is not just characterized by fear and anxiety and worry, but is also characterized by joy, that you're going to be a much better parent as that child goes through that difficult season? That's what Paul is talking about. It doesn't mean you shouldn't have worries. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't be afraid for the influences that might be in your child's life. It just means don't forget the fact that God has made promises about that child. And God will fulfill those promises. And you can rejoice in hope that this season is not going to last forever. Second example. Grace Beyond, we've been talking about that here today. If you're the kind of person who, when we move back on the 18th, after you're done saying, wow, this is really cool, begin to form a list in your head about, but I didn't get this, and why doesn't my Sunday school class meet uh, more regularly, or I don't really like that paint color, or I can't find my parking spot anymore, and you focus on the fact, because there will be things that are frustrating, or annoying, or disappointing, or discouraging, You can imagine that that if that is your sole focus, that will not be a blessing to your small group or to your Sunday school class or to your family or to whomever. If, however, in the midst of the inevitable discouragements and disappointments that come with anything that is built by human hands in this world, you're also able to rejoice in hope that God is doing more at Calvary Church than is happening on the 18th, that there is more going on than just what's happening in this building, that God is working all of this together in some great good, and that God is transforming us. If at the same time you feel that discouragement, you also have joy, you will be a blessing to your small group and to your Sunday school class and to your friends and to your family. The point is not, you should never be discouraged about anything. The point is, is that when we focus on what God is up to, it fills us with joy. Third example. I received this email um, a few weeks ago. It came in response to a sermon that I preached on Abraham and Isaac, where we talked about giving up something that you love, sacrificing something for, that you love. It's from Bob and Annette Shaver. 
And so Annette wrote it, so it's in her voice. Bob and I want to tell you how much we appreciate you, and especially this morning's message as we watched it via internet. Our past two weeks were spent in western Pennsylvania at the bedside of our oldest son, Rob, age 55. He was diagnosed with cancer two months ago. He made his transition to his forever home on Friday morning peacefully and painlessly. We experienced a lot of friends, nurses, and hospice as Jesus with skin on. Having at one time served a church in that area, we were so supported by our church family out there. It was such an honor to be able to bless our son with the blessing of Aaron and to repeat over and over to him that nothing, absolutely nothing, could separate him from the love of God. His smile was reassuring, and his mouth thank yous blessed us. We also had another son, Randy, that passed away nine years ago. The two of them were best buds, being only 13 months apart. At that time, a very close friend called us and quoted Deuteronomy 31.8. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. On the day before Rob passed away, so the first son passed away nine years ago and they received Deuteronomy 31.8. The day before their second son passed away. That verse showed up on Facebook as my verse for the month. Yesterday, listening to Christian radio, it was the scripture for the day. God speaks. Though our hearts grieve, we certainly are assured that God's unchanging grace, loving kindness, and tender mercies are forever. I was blown away when I got that email. Do you hear both the grieving and the joy at the same time? That's someone who is joyful in hope. It doesn't mean that there's no pain. It doesn't mean that you ignore the fact that they've lost two sons. It doesn't ignore the fact that their son was diagnosed with cancer just two months before he passed away. But somehow, by focusing on the fact that God's unchanging grace, that he has an eternity for them all together, that the brothers get to be reunited in Christ. That joyful in hope was a blessing to me when I read that. I trust it's a blessing to you as you hear that this morning. That's Paul's point. If you are the kind of person who in the midst of grief and frustration and pain and anguish will stop to think about what it is that God has promised, what it is that God is up to, what it is that God has sworn that he will do. You will be a person who is joyful in hope and that will allow you to be a blessing to others in all circumstances. I never would have thought that a couple in our church who had just two days earlier lost their son would be a huge blessing to me in the middle of stuff I was going through. How were they able to do that? Because they were joyful in hope.
It's okay to be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. At Christmas, we we sing, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. We celebrate the fact that Jesus is king. You can look around the world and you can see there are all sorts of wars and diseases and famine and problems. There are corrupt politicians. There are corrupt countries. There is all sorts of danger. But you can also, in the midst of all of that, realize that Jesus has sworn he will return and he will set up his kingdom and he will reign and rule on this earth and the government will be on his shoulders and he will have a reign of peace that will last forever. And in the midst of this at Christmas, we celebrate in hope. Christmas is not the end of our suffering as a people, but it's the beginning of the end of our suffering as a people. And no matter what you and I go through, no matter what death we face, no matter what persecution we experience, no matter what financial troubles we have, no matter what health problems we have, the truth of the matter is Jesus Christ is Lord and he will return and make all things right. That's why some of Jesus' final words before he went to the cross were these out of John chapter 16. So it is with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy.